Hello, listener, and welcome to Straight Shot Health Talk. This is the podcast that provides honest and straightforward information about health, wellness, and how to survive our crazy healthcare system. This is for people who want to focus on getting well instead of just treating symptoms. Sound like you? Then let's get started. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Straight Shot Health Talk. This is your host, Dr. Kevin, and I have a wonderful guest for you all today. This is Dr. David Clark. Uh, He is a gastroenterologist in Portland, Oregon. He is also currently the president of the Psychophysiologic Disorders Association, which has its own website at stressillness.com. He was assistant director for the Center for Ethics and clinical assistant professor of gastroenterology at both the Oregon Health Sciences University in Portland, Oregon. And is also the associate faculty, um, he's on the associate faculty at Arizona, Arizona State University and clinical advisor to the Stress Illness Recovery Practitioners Association in the United Kingdom and a clinical lecturer with Pacific University in Oregon. He's a board certified gastroenterologist who is currently retired from private practice but spends a significant amount of time lecturing about the topics that we're presenting today uh, because of the importance that we have for not only the health of society but the health of our healthcare system. He wrote the one of the highest recommended books that I, that I used to use in practice, I recommend to many, many patients called They Can't Find Anything Wrong With Me. Uh, I will link to that into the show notes here. Wonderful book, which we will talk about more. Dr. Clark, thank you for coming on to Straight Shot Health. It's a pleasure, Dr. Kevin. All right. So what I'd like to start off is we touched on your background here, but can you tell us a little bit more about who you are, what you used to do, and what you're doing now? Well, I started out in life as a pretty traditional gastroenterologist. Uh, two-thirds of my patients had things like hepatitis and ulcers and bowel you know, inflammation and, and tumors and so forth. But about a third of my patients, um, we could run them through all the usual diagnostic tests and nothing would show up. And fortunately, before I finished my training, only a year and a half before I finished my training, I'd run into a psychiatrist that was interested in those patients who uh, didn't seem to have any diseased organ to explain their symptoms or any abnormal structure to explain their pain. And it turned out that those people were ill, uh, just as ill as the rest of my patients because of some kind of uh, stress uh, in their life, sometimes more than one stress, and sometimes a stress from the past, as it turned out. And she kind of gave me a framework for how to think about these patients and how to um, talk to them in a way that would help me understand why they were ill Uh, which would then lead usually to a successful plan of uh, treatment. And I didn't expect to see very many people that that had those uh, problems when I first started out. I was thinking maybe five or six a year, but it quickly grew to uh, a third of my practice. And the the techniques that I'd learned from the psychiatrist were enormously valuable in uh, my own growth as a physician and being able to help people that in many cases uh, nobody else could help. And so you took that information and that learning, and when you, as soon as you started your practice up in Portland, you brought that right up into the front of what you were doing, or did you wait a little while? Or no, I, I started out uh, with every patient that uh, the diagnostic tests failed to explain their illness. I would start asking a series of questions uh, designed to uncover the issues that could be responsible for the illness, and. Uh, Lo and behold, the patients had these issues, and when they were addressed successfully, their symptoms began to improve, sometimes dramatically. So I was encouraged to to continue with that uh, approach to patients. Um, I began to get more and more referrals of uh, not only people with gastrointestinal symptoms, but symptoms elsewhere in the body. 
uh, as well and uh, developed a, a reputation for effectiveness uh, and after you know a number of years went by I'd seen over 7,000 of these patients and, and learned a tremendous amount from interviewing those people. My uh, supervisors gave me a full one-hour appointment with them. My nurses would typically schedule these patients right before lunch or at the end of the day so I could go over uh, if I needed to. And I learned a tremendous amount from uh, just talking to, questioning, and listening to uh, this population of patients. What do you think your biggest um, insight was from the time that you really started getting into this back when you first started your practice and say 20 years later? I mean, that's a lot of experience there. So it'd be interesting what your big takeaway would have been. Well, the, the biggest single shock was finding out that in over half of these patients, the, the biggest single stress that was responsible for their symptoms was stress in childhood, which was essentially any treatment of the child that uh, knocked their self-esteem down on a long-term basis. And, and this was brought home to me uh, the most by uh, a single patient who I went through all the usual questions that the psychiatrist had taught me to ask, didn't come up with anything to explain this person's illness. And she had been ill for uh, five years. She had lost uh, almost 90 pounds uh, during that time. And there was absolutely no explanation for her illness. I'd gone through my usual questions, came up with nothing. And then just sort of in desperation, I said, was there anything that happened to you when you were a kid that, that harmed your self-esteem? And immediately she said, oh, yes. Uh, and it turned out that uh, it was her mother's habit uh, at every evening meal uh, to talk to her children about what was wrong with them. Uh, and, you know, here's what you're doing wrong, and here's what you need to do to improve night after night after night after night, all through the years when she was growing up. And now, you know, she's been ill for 18 months. It turns out she has a two-year-old child. When the child was six months old, which was 18 months ago, which was exactly when her illness started, mom started coming around to her, her home to visit. And of course, you can guess what mom had to say when she came to visit. It was, you know, here's what you're doing wrong as a mother. And oh, by the way, here's what's wrong with your little six-month-old baby. So this poor woman didn't know, uh, you know, whether to give her mother a, a big hug when she came over or drop kick her off the front porch. And that was when her illness began. And I thought, you know, I, I see patients who've been abused in various ways. I see people who grow up with uh, alcoholism or drug abuse or violence in the home. And what all of these things do to the child is they make them feel like they're, they're a second-rate human being, like they're, they're not deserving of as much respect as everybody else. So that, that seems to be the common denominator, and I saw that in over half of my patients. Yeah, that's, um, that's fascinating. There, there's a lot of the chronic pain data points to that. Really, early childhood experiences are so important, and it's probably one of the biggest risk factors for the development of chronic pain in general. So how did you... Um, how, how do you approach those issues then when they, someone comes in with a childhood trauma? Well, when, when um, in my early years, I would refer patients to a mental health professional for work. And of course, I still do that. But I found that, um, you know, unfortunately, many mental health professionals are not experienced with the kinds of issues that can make people physically ill. And a lot of these patients would go to the mental health professional and then they would come back to me and they'd say, well, I, I talked to the person and it's not helping me. I still have my symptoms. Can you do anything for me? And I, at the, my early years, I really didn't feel qualified, but I did the best I could. I listened. I tried to understand the, the dynamics of what was happening to people. And 
it took me probably five or six years um, and, you know, well over a thousand of these interviews before the pieces began to, to fall into place and I could understand the process um, by which uh, childhood stress could make someone ill. Because uh, surprisingly, many of these patients don't become ill until midlife. You know, some, certainly some of them, they're ill when they're still children or adolescents and then the illness just carries right on into the adult years. But other patients, including my very first patient with this issue, they didn't become ill until uh, their 20s, 30s, 40s, uh, and, and it was essential to understand what was happening. So in, in brief, um, what I look for is that some, the, the recovery process that someone is going through um, eventually leads them to become very angry about how they were mistreated. But at the same time, when, in order to survive that traumatic childhood, they had to learn how to take those um, emotions that they had when they were children and stuff them in the back of their head somewhere. So they didn't learn really how to express emotions verbally. So now as adults, part of their brain is trying to come to terms with how they were mistreated, but they don't have the, the verbal skills to express those emotions. And so the emotions get expressed um, via the body in the form of symptoms. And so my job is to help people become aware of those emotions and start expressing them verbally, either as, as written words or spoken words. And the more they can do that, they're essentially converting bodily expression of emotion into verbal expression of emotion. And that's what relieves the symptoms. Excellent. So it's sort of like they have an emotional wound. And I'm going to use kind of a medical analogy here. If you have an abscess or a pocket full of pus in the body, what we do is we go in and we drain it. And we have to drain it in order for it to heal. And so what it sounds like to me is basically there's almost an emotional scar and there's a pocket full of repressed emotions there. And we need to find a way to release those. And once those get released, then someone can heal from that. Is Am I hearing that correctly? Or Yeah, I think that's a good analogy. Um, you know, so often people are not recognizing the, the power of these uh, emotions that they have that are, are suppressed. You know, there are many of them will tell me, you know, my childhood wasn't that bad. Um, you know, I went through some stuff, but other people have been through worse, and, and I, I've kind of left it behind. And so I'll ask them, well, you know, how would you feel if your own child was growing up exactly the same way you did, and, and you had to watch that happen? And um, many times, you know, more often than not, people are, are horrified by an idea like that. You know, they'd never in, in the world want their own kid to go through what they went through, and that helps them to connect a little bit with just how uh, challenging and emotional it really was. Yeah, that's interesting how we can tend to uh, neglect ourselves in a way, just like you were saying, is we could say, well, it wasn't that bad. And yet if we really look at somebody else, you know, again, someone we care about, we would never want them to deal with that situation or go through those processes. Um, it was fascinating because when you said that, it just reminded me of the first time I read your book and, and – uh, uh, that line that you had in there specifically is so many people will say, oh, my childhood was not that bad. And you'd be, you know, I, I had it. I'd be sitting there going, how could you say this is not bad, you know? Um, but it's interesting that just that reference point. And I love how you you really develop that secondary part where where you reflect and say, well, what if it was somebody else? And you kind of, they have to detach themselves from that situation and really think about someone they loved and if they would want them through that difficult situation, as you said. No one would want anybody to go through that kind of horror ever. That's right. So um, 
third. Now, how long did you practice for? I'm sorry. <laughs> um, you know, I, I learned this these ideas in 1983, and I practiced through uh, 2009, so 26 years. 26 years. And did you find a way that you were getting, uh, you know, a lot of this when, when you have people have such repressed and deep and buried emotions, getting into them can be very difficult and very tricky. Did you have any techs or, tech, or techniques that you would use towards the end that, you know, uh, made an easier process or you would hone in and find those stressors a little bit sooner rather than later? Well, it certainly helps to take a very matter-of-fact attitude uh, toward it. Um, you, you don't want people to feel like uh, you're going to be afraid to hear uh, what they have to say. And so I'll start off with a very nonspecific question. Um, you know, were you under stress when you were growing up? Uh, can you give me a number from 0 to 10, with 10 being worst, of, of how difficult it was? Um, and then they give me a number, and I'll say, can you tell me why you give it the number you did? What kinds of experiences did you have? And people are surprisingly willing to share uh, their experiences. Uh, it's not unusual for me to be either the first or second person that has ever heard uh, these stories. People are often relieved that a uh, healthcare professional is willing to listen uh, to this story. Um, and it's therapeutic for people to uh, to describe what happened to them and for them to hear uh, from a professional that, you know, we recognize just how difficult this was and that it can have long-lasting consequences that, that can persist for decades into adult life. Now, how about this idea? There are some people that just don't seem to want to connect the idea that the brain, the mind can have these physical effects. Do you have a way that you would explain that, knowing that how we know now that the brain and the, the mind affect the body on multiple different ways, not only psychologically, but, but their physiology and, and muscle tension and things. Do you have a good way that you would explain that with patients or tell them? Yeah, it's, it's really important to uh, help people understand just how ill you can get from stress. I mean, I had trouble believing it uh, when I first encountered this. Uh, my very first patient had been very severely ill for two years. I've had many patients in the hospital with stress-related illness, uh, two of them for 77 straight days. So, you know, I'll point out to people that uh, my patients who have illness due to organ disease or a structural abnormality have about the same level of severity of symptoms as my patients with stress-related illness. Uh, I'll point out uh, in particular that this is a physiologic process, uh, no different in principle than uh, illnesses w with other causes. Uh, if you walk into a tense situation and you feel a knot in your stomach, that's a psychophysiologic reaction. If you blush with embarrassment over something, that's a psychophysiologic reaction. These are not imaginary. People are not making this up. Um, they're not faking it. They're, they're not uh, doing it to themselves. It's, it's simply a uh, uh, a normal physiologic reaction to very high levels of stress. And, and once the, I can get people to understand that, then we can move on and start looking for what the stress is. All right. And um, excellent point there. Now, what I would like to do is go into, in your, in your fantastic book, you talk about the seven keys to treating stress illness. And so what I would like to do just for the listeners today is let's go through those seven keys. And I'm going to just give the topic sentence and then if you can help us understand and how, how someone can use these effectively, and more importantly, in a way that they can use to partner with their healthcare provider to get the care that they need. Does that sound okay? 
Sure. All right. So let's start with step one or the, or the first key. Understand that your symptoms can be diagnosed and treated. And this is what we've been talking about, uh, that these are real symptoms with a real cause. And <clears throat> if we can uncover the stresses that are um, underlying these symptoms, we can do something about them. And you know, my approach is to look into five different areas. Are you having stress in your life at the moment? Did you have stress when you were growing up? Um, or have you been through a, a terrifying or horrifying event that might give you post-traumatic stress? Or do you have um, depression or anxiety um, you know, at the level of a, of a real disease or disorder that you're not recognizing? And one of the other parts that you had on that step was um, a question about diagnostic testing. Would you have any insight on that? You know, there's people always saying, get your second opinion, get your third opinion. Your doctors, you know, particularly with the Internet, you need to run 42 different tests and look for these weird abnormalities and things like that. Um, what, what would you say to that? Well, it's very important to have a uh, diagnostic evaluation by a physician to make sure that there isn't an organic uh, or structural cause uh, for the symptoms. But uh, there's also no harm in simultaneously trying to uncover the stresses and working on those. Um, you don't need to wait until you've done, you know, 52 diagnostic tests before you start working on the stress issues. You can do them in, in parallel with each other. And if you find that uncovering and treating the stress issues leads to improvement in your symptoms, that's uh, solid diagnostic evidence uh, in and of itself. And if you're able to completely relieve the symptoms through uh, treating the stresses, that's the clincher. That's the... Uh, um, diagnostic confirmation that you had a stress-related illness or psychophysiologic disorder. And I, I guess the point be, there being there's no harm in pursuing a, you know, trying to reduce the stress along with any concurrent illness, really. Yeah, I mean, if the stress is not at all responsible for your condition and there, there is some uh, organ disease that's going on, uh, you've still done yourself a favor by... Uh, uh, relieving some of the stresses in your life and if they're not connected to the illness uh, that's perfectly okay yeah improved recovery improved outcomes all sorts of things so all right so number two key number two search for the sources of stress and this is what we were just talking about uh, i tend to look for five different sources of stress uh, uh, the categories that i just mentioned one of the important subcategories of stress in your life uh, at the moment is uh, people who um, are able to take care of everybody else in their world, but they have trouble putting themselves on the list of people they take care of. And sooner or later, those individuals have a tendency to hit the wall. It's kind of like they're on a treadmill, they never get off, and their bodies just start to protest after a while. Many of those individuals grew up in challenging home circumstances, not necessarily abusive, but uh, in circumstances where they never got sufficient opportunities to play. Uh, when we're children and we're playing, uh, we are learning self-care skills. So that as adults, we, we know how to take a break. We can, we can set aside our other responsibilities and just focus on ourselves for a little while. But if you grow up and, and you never get to play and you're constantly focused on, on everything that's going on in the world around you, uh, then maybe as an adult, you, you never take a break. If you got five or 10 minutes of free time, you think about, oh, I gotta clean this, or I gotta call my neighbor, or, or what have you, and, and that catches up with people. 
What What about the person that comes in and they say, I have no stress in my life at all? Great. Uh, <laughs> you know, we're going to be uh, focusing on finding organ diseases and structural abnormalities. Uh, but uh, here again, many of my patients, um, they have been under so much stress for so long uh, that they don't recognize it as being anything out of the ordinary. It's it's like somebody who's carrying uh, 300 pounds on a, on a dumbbell or a barbell across their shoulders. And if they've been doing it for 20 years, they, they don't notice it until they put it down. Mm -hmm. And then they say, whoa, I'm, I'm feeling so much better here. So I'll, I'll still ask that patient a few questions uh, and just try to uncover. Uh, there was a psychotherapist uh, uh, that I know that told me about a patient that came to see her and said, you know, my, I'm a very high-functioning individual. My life is going really well, but I want, I want to function even better. Um, I don't really have any stresses or, or problems, but I just want to elevate my level of functioning. Well, it turned out that he had a, a severely emotionally abusive father. Um, he had uh, every single one of his close personal relationships had fallen apart uh, uh, since he was, you know, 16 years old and he was now 32. I mean, he had one problem after another, but, you know, he didn't perceive the, the magnitude of these things because they were just what he was used to. Did you have any way when, did, to kind of go around that stress question? Because sometimes I've found that people, once they hear the word stress, they put up that wall of, you know, it can't be stress. That means it's all in my head. Um, but then how do you how do you lift that bar, that barbell off their shoulders in a way that kind of demonstrates to them? hey, this is what it could be like for you. Well, I'll use a lot of, uh, of analogies to try to get people to understand that uh, um, they may have more stress than they recognize and that stress is perfectly capable of causing real live uh, physical symptoms. You know, we can't get anywhere, uh, as you point out, we can't get anywhere with the going deeper into the history unless the patient and I are both on, on the same page. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll point out that, that uh, analogy I, I mentioned earlier, that if you're in a tense situation and you feel a knot in your stomach, you know, that's a real phenomenon. There's nothing imaginary about that. And these illnesses are simply uh, an exaggeration of that phenomenon from stresses that are, that are stronger and going on for a longer period of time. Excellent. All right, key number three, care for yourself. And this is the approach to the person that is comfortable taking care of everybody else in their world, but not so much focusing on their own needs. And that those individuals, the, the only successful treatment for their symptoms is going to be learning self-care skills, taking a certain block of time out of their week, every week, you know, regular basis, uh, to just do something self-indulgent. Uh, to find something in their life um, that is the moral equivalent of finger paints for a four-year-old. A four-year-old does not care how many pictures per hour they produce. They don't care who sees it. They don't care about the quality of the work. They just know they're having a blast. And everybody needs that in their life. You know, I, I played indoor soccer for 22 years. Uh, we'd go out for a beer afterwards. You know, after being kind and compassionate to my patients all week, it was great to go out there and kick something. Uh, and that was my personal stress reduction. Everybody needs something like that. And if you've never had that, you need to go out and do some trial and error until you uh, basically teach yourself what works for you. Excellent. Key number four, 
get right by writing? There's a lot of research about the value of writing exercises of various kinds uh, for converting uh, stress that's that's buried in your head somewhere and maybe ex getting expressed by your body into words. And writing has this magic ability to pull ideas out of your head that you didn't necessarily know were there. One of my patients, she, she put me off for a year and a half saying, I, I don't want to do any writing about this. But when she finally did, and in her case, I had her write a letter to her uh, formerly abusive father, not to mail it, just, just to write it, dear dad, and, and put some ideas down. She agreed to write two paragraphs. And I said, I don't think that's going to be enough, but why don't you try it and see what happens. And what happened was she ended up with nine single space pages. Um, and her symptoms after years of, of you know, debilitating her um, were 90% better after that. So, um, you know, you can write in, in a journal every day. You can write a letter to the formerly abusive parent, again, that you don't mail. Um, you can um, imagine yourself for a week raising your own child exactly the way you were raised and then write about how it would feel to do that for a week. Um, these kinds of exercises uh, help, uh, again, dig into emotions that people have uh, suppressed for a long time. It, do you um, have them keep those? Or, I mean, one of our colleagues talks about destroying those when they're written. Have you found any difference there? or I give people the choice of what to do with them, and people do all kinds of interesting things. Uh, one of my patients uh, took his letter to his dad, uh, to his dad's grave, and read it to him. Uh, it took him four or five hours to read the whole thing uh, by his report. Um, another patient of mine told me that after I had suggested writing a letter to uh, her mom, um, she, she cried all the way home, driving home from the appointment, and then, you know, wasn't able to start writing uh, immediately, but eventually um, sat down and started doing it. Um, another patient of mine, uh, when she was 17, they had been at a picnic on, uh, uh, at a park on the uh, northern California coast, and her father got up from the picnic, walked to the edge of a cliff, and kept going. Uh, and she witnessed this, and he fell into the ocean 200 feet below, uh, Shark-infested waters, body was never recovered. Um, she wrote uh, this. Now, 25 years later, she's having unrelenting pain in her right upper quadrant of her abdomen. It, it's, you know, she's been to six doctors and nobody's found anything. Uh, I had her write a letter to her dad, um, and what she chose to do with it was she bought a, a toy wooden boat, put the letter in the boat drove to Northern California from Oregon uh, to the spot where his body had hit the water and pushed the boat out into the, uh, into the sea. So all kinds of different things that people end up doing. Do you, do you ever guide them on that or have you found that they kind of find what is the right answer for themselves? Absolutely. Yeah. People find their own uh, approach to this. You know, sometimes they're not ready to write. Sometimes they write everything at once, like the woman with the nine single-space pages. Other people write a little bit every day. Um, some people burn the letters when they're done. Uh, the nine single-space pages are in a locked desk drawer uh, that she occasionally will take out and reread. So uh, it's um, everybody's an individual uh, on this one. Now, do you have them do any positive writing too, or is it mostly just writing whatever comes up, The just the feelings, the past stress that they have, or do you have them focus on anything else? What I'm looking for is to take the emotions that are, are 
locked away, uh, buried, and I want to get them expressed in words, either spoken or written. Some of my patients who are not so good with uh, with writing, I'll have them speak into a, a recording device. Um, but I'm, I'm wanting them to focus on um, the issues that I've uncovered that are, are very powerful and usually negative for them, because I, I want them to understand how they feel. And once those feelings are, are out in the open and can be dealt with consciously, um, they no longer have to be dealt with subconsciously. Yeah, I, I just had a little moment here when I was thinking about this because there's a lot of um, you know positive psychology and people are talking about all these you know writing positive things. Uh, and I guess it makes sense for this. This is really sort of the emotional re- release. We're trying to lance that boil and get all that emotional pus and awfulness in there out. So that makes a lot of sense for me that that you should just focus on getting that uh, repressed emotion out. At, at the same time, though, um, I point out to people that uh, a hero in our society is somebody who has overcome a difficult uh, physical or mental challenge for a good cause. And my patients who have survived uh, an abusive or severely dysfunctional childhood have done exactly that. They've overcome this sometimes horrendous challenges when they were you know, very young, very vulnerable, didn't have any um, uh, other recourse but to just endure what they were in the middle of um, and they should look at themselves as uh, uh, as if they were born on the far side of Mount Everest and had to climb up and over to get to the other side and if they can look at themselves in that very positive way uh, as, as a heroic individual uh, it's a really important foundation for um, all of the improvements to come. Yeah, that's a that's a great point, and thank you for calling me out on that because that really changes the role from one of a victim to a much more empowering role for the patient. And uh, as we as we know, there's quite a bit of data on victimization and passive locus of control and things where people just feel like they have no control over the situation. So, great point. Thank you very much for adding that. Now, number five or key number five, use appropriate therapies. Well. Um there are limits to what I can do as a gastroenterologist. You know, I don't, I don't know everything, um, and I absolutely rely on my mental health uh, professional colleagues uh, to uh, carry on the, the treatment of these patients. Once we've uncovered some of the issues that um, are responsible for their illness and, and brought them into conscious awareness, uh, my mental health professional colleagues can, can take over the management uh, at that point. And some of these patients... Uh, need years of therapy, uh, frankly, uh, to continue uh, their progress toward uh, relief of their symptoms. You know, a certain fraction of the patients will experience uh, profound, significant relief of symptoms within a few days or weeks, but other people, um, their progress is going to be much slower. And it's it's not, you know, uh, anything that's their responsibility. It's, it's just a question of the degree of... Um, uh, stress that they're coping with. It's you know the difference between carrying uh, 200 pounds on the barbell and 2,000 pounds on the barbell, um, and some people just need longer uh, longer treatments. Um, so uh, therapies, you know, psychotherapy, medication is another. Some people it's you know very useful as a as a crutch, either temporary or sometimes much longer term. Uh, medications for anxiety uh, and for depression can be very helpful. And I liked how you said that as a crutch, you know, as, as, some, as a temporizing measure in a lot of cases, rather than a replacement for the, the, the cure or the addressment of the issue. Um, now, one other part I wanted to touch on this, though, is 
you had mentioned before, sometimes it's very difficult to find a other healthcare provider or mental health provider who is comfortable in addressing these issues. Is there a suggestion you have for that? Because if, in, in some of my experience, you can get the wrong person and it can do almost as much damage as, as something else. Like I, I, I'm thinking of physical therapists sometimes when they tell back pain patients that they need MRIs because there's something horribly wrong with their back and I've been trying to get them through that fear-based you know, movement. So. Uh, are there any resources there to, to find a good mental health provi- provider? Well, choosing a therapist um, is you know not like choosing uh, an orthopedist to fix your your broken leg. Um, you know, a fractured leg is going to be pretty much the same from one person to another. The treatments for it are pretty standardized, and you're not going to get a lot of variation from one orthopedic surgeon to another. But with mental health professionals, there can be quite a range and. The, the your personal comfort level uh, and engagement with that therapist are uh, really important. So I, I would say right off the bat, you know, make a few calls. You know, try to get some recommendations, starting with, perhaps with your personal physician of who they would recommend, because uh, they're going to know who's who's available in the community. Talk to the therapist on the phone as a sort of a, a pre-visit meeting. Find out if they have uh, what kind of experience. Uh, and training and comfort level do they have with the particular issues that you're going to be bringing to them. You know, if they don't like to dwell on the long-term consequences of childhood stress or if they don't treat a lot of people with PTSD and post-traumatic stress disorder and those happen to be, you know, your problems, you, you probably should look for another therapist. And then once you start the process, if you find after a few visits that it's not working for you, um, there's nothing wrong with that. It's not surprising or shocking at all. You should just say, thank you very much. I need to move on and go find another one. Because sooner or later, you're going to find a therapist that that uh, is able to work with you, is able to help you, and that you feel uh, comfortable with. And uh, those individuals are worth their weight in gold and, and worth uh, taking the time to look for them, even if it involves some trial and error. Excellent. All right. Key number six. This is uh, one of the most interesting to me overcome hidden resistance you know i think one of the the roots of this is really in that that self-esteem issue that we talked about before um that you know many people it's um uh that sense that they are a second-rate human being has been drummed into them in in a variety of different ways They've, they've gotten that message uh from more than one source frequently in their early environment that the the boundaries of their body were not respected that their their personal safety in their household was uh, uh, not always there and I think until people can um, you know recognize those issues uh, uh, for what they did to their to their self-esteem on a long-term basis uh, it's going to hold them back um, so uh, taking some time to, to think about that, uh, write about that, um, and uh, beginning to look at yourself as somebody who's uh, a lot stronger than perhaps you used to think um, is, is going to be important in, in moving forward. What, what do you, um, and you talked about in this book, so I just want to touch about it again, what about outside influencers when it comes to hidden resistance? Um, you know, it's another source, uh, you know, that many of my patients, they're, they're, people who mistreated them are still alive. Um, they may still, the, the patient may still wish to reconcile with the parents, um, may have some hope that there will be uh, an understanding reached or that the in, 
the parent will recognize the mistakes that they made and you know express their their sorrow for what they did and and, and hope for reconciliation and most of the time unfortunately that doesn't happen and instead um, the parents or sometimes other other relatives may continue to be a source of, of problems and uh, continue to be a source of, uh, frankly, uh, emotional abuse. And that needs to be recognized for what it is. And um, getting a realistic appraisal of, of how much hope there that you can have for uh, any changes there uh, is also important uh, because you don't want uh, a continuation of the ab abuse that you suffered as a kid to be holding you back as an adult. Absolutely. And finally, key number seven, become the person you were always meant to be. Well, I, uh, through the years and, and through, you know, 7,000 plus interviews with people, um, I recognized that, that many of my patients, uh, uh, what they had suffered really limited them um, in their, their personal growth and in what they believed they could achieve. Um, but if they're able to... Uh, uh, overcome the sources of stress uh, that, are, that are capable of causing physical illness, uh, if they can leave that um, behind, then their, their personal growth can happen. They, they can um, reach the potential that they've always had. Um, they can um, develop a realistic uh, self-appraisal and self-image. Uh, and, you know, to, to put it in short, they can become the people that um, they would have been if they'd grown up in a, in a healthy environment or if they had um, not been subjected to depression or anxiety or, or to a trauma, traumatic event. So it's almost a switch from survival mode to a thrive mode. Thriving mode is absolutely right. I mean, I, my patients, when they, uh, that's one of the, the great joys of doing this work is that you not only are you relieving people's symptoms, uh, but you are uh, enabling them to put down uh, their limitations in many ways. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Clark, we have had you for almost 40, a little over 40 minutes here, and I thank you so much for coming on the show. Do you have any last words, or do you have a place where people can find you online or send you any notes if they have and I desire to? Yeah, um, if they go to stressillness.com, um, there's you know ways there that they can uh, contact me directly and send an email if they wish. Uh, and there's also um, the nonprofit corporation has some resources as well, and that's at ppdassociation.org. Fantastic. And for all you listeners out there, just one last thing. I, I'm going to have a summary of the seven keys to stress illness, and it'll be available at straightshothealth.com for download. Uh, also, I would highly recommend if you have any sort of health issues um, around the stress illness phenomenon that you read Dr. Clark's book. It really is phenomenal. It does an absolutely amazing job of taking patient stories. It is an, in, an, in a world where it's so difficult uh, to find good reading material, particularly from physicians, because we have a tendency to write over everybody's heads. It's easy to understand. It, you can identify with the people in the book, um, and it really, it, it's just a fantastic book. So I would recommend that to everyone out there. Dr. Clark, thank you so much, and hope to have you on the show again someday. Thank you, Dr. Kevin. You're doing great work. All right. Thank you very much. We'll talk to you soon, guys.